All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode of Professionally Embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. Professionally Embarrassing, your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me, Malika. And me, Maddie. Welcome back to episode 10 of Professionally Embarrassing, and it is our season one finale. Are you excited, Maddie? I couldn't be more excited. We look very excited. We both look tired. That's what we look like. We've loved doing this podcast, but it is a lot of work. And I think we're ready for a little summer break. But we're not going to be leaving without a bang. What are you going to have for our listeners in this episode, Maddie? I have, as ever, a very depressing case this week about mistreatment of a child and application for deprivation of his liberty that some of you may be familiar with. What about you? I have a case about something called the resolutions model. Have you heard of that? No, I haven't. It's to do with whether or not children can be reunified safely with parents who have caused injuries to children but deny that they've ever done it. So it's a really, really useful case for those representing parents who find themselves in that situation to have in their back pocket. So I'm very excited to be talking about it today. But let's start off with your case, which I have heard of, a lot of our listeners will have heard of, and which is indeed extremely depressing and a sad state of affairs. Yeah, I did consider not talking about this case, but I actually think it is of such supreme importance to both practitioners and non-practitioners that it was worth mentioning on this platform. It's called Wigan NBC and N, and it is a deprivation of liberty case that came before Mr. Justice MacDonald on the 14th of July, 2021. It concerns a child called Y, who is ostensibly born on the 7th of February 2009 and thus age 12 when the judgment was handed down. Y suffers from ADHD and autistic spectrum disorder and has a diagnosis of epilepsy. In the opening paragraph, Mr Justice MacDonald highlights that as will become apparent, Y has demonstrated and continues to demonstrate violent and increasingly self-harming behaviour. The background is that he first became known to the local authority in April 2011, following an allegation that his father was misusing drugs and alcohol, leading him to make threats to his mother. It was alleged that those threats comprised statements that the father was going to gas them, blow the house up, slit the children's throats whilst they are sleeping. On the 13th of April 2011, a strategy discussion was held by the local authority, and following that, uh, Y and his siblings were made subject to child protection plans under the category of emotional abuse. He then spent subsequent years between 2011 and 2015 subject to either child protection or child in need plans. For those who aren't familiar, those are levels of intervention by the local authority. Child protection is slightly more serious, child in need is slightly less serious. On the 21st of July 2015, Y became looked after for the purposes of the children out, so he was placed into care following a Section 20 agreement by his mother. This was as a result of his father's continued alleged substance misuse and presence of unexplained injuries to the children. Y was found to have grazes and friction burns on his hands. These were thought to be accidental and due to lack of supervision. Whilst Y was in the care of the local authority, the father was subject of a positive parenting assessment and he was returned to his father on the 29th of March 2016. He was placed again on the child protection plan following this placement with his father, and I would be interested to see that judgment under the category of neglect following an allegation that the father had inappropriately physically chastised him. And then there is a list at paragraph 10 of the judgment of the following issues which were raised in September 2020, following some comments made by Y, who at this stage is now 11 or 12. The father was said to have a diagnosis of ADHD, but did not take medication for this condition as he asserted he did not believe in medicating his illness. His father was allegedly regularly using alcohol and cannabis, and the mother was reported to go missing for hours. The father was alleged to talk openly about his childhood trauma in front of Y and redirect conversations from Y to his own childhood trauma and choices. Y was noted to have a number of unexplained injuries, including broken fingers, a bruise to the right temple, burnt hair, and a cut to his face. On the 2nd of July, he attended school with a mark to his forehead. 
Father was alleged to have failed to administer to Y the medication required to manage his epilepsy, resulting in seizures and ambulances being called. Y's school noted that he would attend school in a very heightened state during which he was almost non-verbal, necessitating staff having to physically restrain him and manage his behaviour with a need to allocate staff to a three-to-one ratio and make provision for segregated learning. Y presented with dangerous behaviours on transport to and from school, putting staff himself and members of the public at risk. The most recent incident involved him attempting to pull the handbrake on while a school vehicle was in motion. He stated to a school therapist that he wished to hang himself one day and that he may seek to do so when travelling home from school. On that date, he did in fact place a seatbelt around his neck. On the 4th of May 2021, Y was discovered to have been searching the internet using terms suicide, death and being in prison. On the 14th of May 2021, Y displayed self-harming behaviour in school by scratching his arms with his fingernails and his school attendance is at 39.4%. So this is the backdrop against which the case came before Mr. Justice MacDonald. And the case concerns an application by a hospital trust to keep the child in a placement that essentially deprives him of his liberty and manages him or attempts to manage him. So Mr. Justice MacDonald highlights that paragraph two of the judgment in this way, which I think is really well put. In what will be a scenario now depressingly familiar to those in the habit of reading on Bailey judgments given by high court judges and deputy high court judges, aka you and I, Marvada. And within the context of acute emotional and behavioural difficulties consequent on past abuse, Y has been assessed as not meeting the relevant criteria for detention under Section 2 or 3 of the Mental Health Act 1983, as he is not considered to be suffering from mental disorder. At the same time, the therapeutic treatment within a restrictive clinical environment for acute behavioural and emotional issues arising from past trauma that he does urgently require is simply unavailable. So the problem is this. He is exhibiting this child, this 12-year-old boy, is exhibiting such significantly difficult behaviours, such challenging and destructive self-harming behaviours, that he is unable to really be in a situation that does not involve very acute levels of care and acute levels of attention. But the reason for those behaviours is not rooted in a mental disorder, it's rooted in behavioural trauma. So under section two and three of the Mental Health Act, in case anyone is not aware, you can't detain people or deprive them of their liberty unless they are in fact suffering from a proven mental disorder. And in this case, this child is not. So there is no legal basis for deprivation of liberty. So the NHS Trust Hospital has had to make an application where Y is currently being kept for a declaration of deprivation of liberty under the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court. Mr Justin McDonald highlights that the outcome of the mental health assessment by the Paediatric Health Trust was that Y was not detainable under Section 2 of the Mental Health Act and did not require a Tier 4 bed. This conclusion was reached based on the view of the Paediatric Health Trust that Y's behaviour was trauma-based. Those representing the Trust make clear that the Hospital Trust was surprised by this outcome having regard to Y's presentation on the ward. Within this context, the Section 5.2 detention is discharged and it becomes impermissible to use rapid effect tranquilizers on Y, with restraint being thereafter limited to that authorised by the deprivation of liberty order made on the 6th of July 2021. A recommendation was made that Y be placed in a therapeutic placement. The hospital indicated that it wished to discharge Y on the basis that he was no longer in the correct setting. So essentially... There have been some previous cases before it comes to court on this occasion where the judges have simply authorised deprivation of liberty because there is no other alternative for this boy. They can't find him a suitable therapeutic placement, but the placement he's currently in is completely unacceptable. And the reason it is unacceptable is for the following reasons. Why currently remains, 12-year-old, currently remains contained on the ward in a sectioned-off area. The doors to the paediatric ward have been securely shut and the area cleared of all movable objects. The door to the shower in which he washes himself has been removed and therefore Y has no privacy at all when showering or dealing with other aspects of his hygiene. He is at present sleeping on a mat on the floor and he is unable to have a pillow or a sheet due to risk of self-harm and suicide. Y is still being prescribed daily intramuscular olanzapine, which is an antipsychotic. The hospital taking the view that without this chemical sedation, Y's behaviour would be simply unmanageable. Y does not socialise. In stark contrast to every other case of this nature that has recently come before this court, none of which involved placement on a hospital paediatric ward rather than a residential setting, neither the evidence contained in the bundle nor the submissions made by the advocates identifies any positives with respect to Y's current parlour situation, whether with respect to improvements in his behaviour, his relationships with staff or otherwise. His assaults on staff are frequent, violent and cause injuries to both Y and staff. I'm not going to go into the details because they are quite horrible actually and and I don't think it's worth pointing them out in order to make the point that this is an incredibly difficult situation for this boy they cannot find a therapeutic residential place well ostensibly Wigan Metropolitan Borough Council cannot find a therapeutic residential placement for this child 
such that a 12 year old is being kept on a hospital and being chemically sedated with antipsychotic and sedative drugs on a regular basis, because that is the only way to control his behavior. His behavior is not getting better. He's not improving in this placement, but it's the only way to keep him ostensibly safe or at some low level of safe. The court is being asked to authorize the deprivation of liberty under the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court simply because the local authority cannot find an alternative for this child. And so the judge goes on to review what the submissions are made and what he should do in this context. He says he's satisfied on the evidence that the current restrictions imposed on Y are a deprivation of his liberty. And within that context, the only question for the court is whether it is in Y's best interests to make an order authorizing the restrictions that continue the deprivation of liberty, having regard to his welfare. In circumstances where the hospital ward is the only placement available for Y, in resolving that question, the court must have regard to the fact that although Y is deprived of his liberty, there is no alternative available, which offers a lesser degree of restriction. Within the context of the concerns raised before the court, that approach will necessarily involve consideration of whether the placement is so unsuitable as to breach Y's rights under Article 5 of the European Convention of Human Rights. So he goes on to say, I accept the submission of the Children's Guardian that a further consequence of the paediatric hospital ward being a wholly inappropriate venue for the deprivation of a wise liberty is that there is an increased risk that the restrictions authorised by the court as lawful risk being regularly exceeded in an attempt to manage why in an appropriate setting. There is indeed evidence that this has taken place in circumstances where, for example, he's been deprived of a bed, pillow and blankets, where on occasion physical restraint is taking place by staff who are not properly trained, and whilst he's on a Judge Singleton QC in a previous hearing, authorised the use of fast-acting tranquilisation as a means of chemical restraint when efforts to gain wise consent failed, where the current regime of chemical restraint cleaves closer to that of constant sedation. This is not the result of malice or negligence, but simply of an increasingly desperate attempt to contain this boy in a situation that is not designed in any way for that purpose. Having regards then, Mr Justice MacDonald says, to the matter set out above, I cannot in good conscience conclude the restrictions in respect of which the local authority seeks authorisation from the court. I consider that it would border on the obscene to use the protective parents patrio jurisdiction of the High Court to authorise Wise's current situation. I am further satisfied that this conclusion is not altered by the fact that as at 12 noon today, there was no alternative placement available capable of meeting Wise's needs. In this case, I consider that the current arrangements for Y are so inappropriate that they constitute a clear and continuing breach of his Article 5 rights. Within this context, the fact there is no alternative cannot by itself justify the continuation of those arrangements. All the evidence in the case points to the current placement being manifestly harmful to Y. Within that context, the absence of an alternative cannot render what is the single option available in Y's best interests and hence lawful. So, what do you think? This isn't new, sadly. This is the latest judgment we have, which highlights an issue that's been ongoing for many years, but we've seen many judgments like this, which have hit the headlines. There's a brief period of outrage, and then we go back to things as normal until yet another judgment comes out. I'm sure you remember the judgment by the president of the family division, as he then was, Sir James Mumby, in 2017. I think it was a, it might have been a re-ex and he said that we'd have blood on our hands if we couldn't find a placement for a teenage girl who was at risk of taking her own life. There was a huge waiting list for a bed that would have been suitable for her. And that the same outrage on legal Twitter and you know, in the headlines of The Guardian was there. And then it was forgotten about again until yet another vulnerable child was picked up by a judgment in Bailey. <sighs> I mean, what more can be said? There's chronic underfunding of support services that children desperately need and everyone's doing their best, but our best is not good enough. And children who are the most vulnerable children that we come across in our jobs are the ones who suffer the consequences of a system that doesn't have enough money or does have enough money, but just isn't directing it to the right places. Yeah, I think it feeds back as well to the discussion we had, I think, maybe at the beginning of this season regarding proactive versus reactive social work because this is a child who's been involved with the local authority for 10 years before this case happened and clearly there were very significant issues with his father's parenting of him that have resulted at least in part in the behavior that he's now exhibiting and there was certainly no reason in my view for the local authority to allow it to quote unquote get this far given that this is a child they have known for 10 years and this is a child whose behaviour presumably has increasingly worsened to the point where he's now completely unmanageable. And 
it seems very, I can understand it for all the reasons that we've talked about before in terms of resources and lack of availability of good, well-trained social workers and those who support them. But it seems ridiculous that this boy was known for 10 years when he was so young, two or three years old, and then has ended up in a situation like this because of various different views of the social workers and in fact the courts who returned him to his father's care. So it seems like a situation that could have been avoided and I think that's what sticks in the throat for me is how eminently avoidable this is and how young this child is. He's not 14, 15, he's 12, but he's just starting puberty, just starting his life as a teenager and he's still exhibiting behaviour that five to one staff ratio can't manage. So something terrible has happened to him and it's a real shame that rather than really having the resources to investigate and therapize that it is being sedated and, and sort of pushed off pushed into the long grass by the professionals it, it's it's incredibly sad and I found it a very difficult and, and moving case particularly in relation to the life he lives now you know he sleeps on a mat on the floor because he's not allowed bed sheets in case he tries to harm himself which is an incredibly sad state of affairs for a 12-year-old child in, in a country such as ours, which should be ashamed of, of things like this, absolutely. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty, and we've talked on this podcast many times about how things could have turned out very differently if there was just the input that there should have been a long time ago. But as we've said before, social care is occupied with firefighting the urgent cases, and a case that wasn't urgent has now ended up in circumstances where it is extremely urgent that this child gets some support. And then we end up, like you said, reacting rather than preempting what could have happened. I just, I, I can't say more than that, really, apart from how very sorry I am for this child that he's having to live this extremely dystopic existence it's something that you don't think could happen in the world we live in today yeah I just want to end if I may with some of the words that Miss Justice McDonald has at the end of the judgment because I think they're really important for communication of both how society feels about it but how judiciary feel about dealing with the cases like this so he says at paragraph 64 judgments given by a court should be sober and measured superlatives should be avoided it is likewise prudent that a judge carefully police a judgment for the presence of adjectives However, and as the hearing proved, in this case, it is simply not possible to convey the appropriate sense of alarm without recourse to such language. In this case, having observed that in his 30 years at the bar, he had never been in a position of asking the court to authorise a regime for a child as shameful as this one, Mr Martin conceded on behalf of the local authority that boiled down to its essence, his submission was simply that the court must today prefer the lesser of two acknowledged evils, the hospital ward or the street, in circumstances where there is currently no alternative placement but that is not a solution that can be countenanced in a civilised society. As I have observed above, it would border on the obscene to use a protective jurisdiction to continue wise current bleak and dangerous situation, simply because those with responsibility for making proper provision for vulnerable children in this jurisdiction have failed to discharge that responsibility. So maybe it will make a difference to local authorities. Maybe it won't. Maybe it will make a difference to the government. Maybe it won't. We'll have to see. I have looked up Rex, the Sir James Mumby case from 2017, and I was rereading some of his comments there, and they are really powerful, so I, I am going to repeat them now. If, when in 11 days' time, she's released from ZX, which is the secure unit that this child is in, we, the system, society, the state, are unable to provide X with the supportive and safe placement she so desperately needs, and if, in consequence, she is enabled to make another attempt on her life, then I can only say with bleak emphasis, we will have blood on our hands. The judge goes on to say, we are even in these times of austerity, one of the richest countries in the world. Our children and young people are our future. X is part of our future. It is a disgrace to any country with pretensions to civilization, compassion, and dare one say it, basic human decency, that a judge in 2017 should be faced with the problems thrown up by this case and should have to express himself in such terms. And that was four years ago and nothing seems to have really changed. Well, moving on from that, what have you got for us today? Hopefully something more resolution based. In my case, it's really positive and is an example of a local authority doing very well. I know that we seem to be local authority bashers on this podcast, which we absolutely aren't. We act for local authorities. We know what a difficult job social workers do but they are often the world's punching bags and they don't often get 
a spotlight for the good work that they do because it's only the bad decisions that come to light in the published judgments on Bailey. So the case that I've picked is called J, a child resolutions model. The child is, first of all, can I just say this judgment is written in such a reader-friendly way. The parties are not referred to by initials. They've been given pseudonyms and the language is incredibly simple. Some judgments on Bailey are absolutely impenetrable. So kudos to the judge for making such an effort to make sure that his judgment is accessible to everyone. So the child in the judgments referred to is Jane and she's just over a year old and her mother is called Beverly and her father is called Carl in the judgment. The day after Jane was born, the local authority applied for a care order because of something that happened to Jane's older sister, Amber, who is four years old. Amber was the mother's child, but not Carl's child, but he had been living with Beverly and caring for Amber when issues had arisen. After care proceedings, Amber was removed from her mother's care and placed with a relative who then became a special guardian for her. And the reason for this was that Amber in Beverly and Carl's care had sustained a number of injuries, including bruising to her face and fingertip bruising to her ribs. The judge found in Amber's case that the injuries were inflicted and they were caused by either Beverly or Carl. Amber also had missing fingernails, which had become infected and black toenails. And the judge found that the fingernail loss was caused or contributed to by some sort of external trauma, which couldn't be explained by the accidental trauma that was described by her mother. The judge found the injuries to the nails were inflicted and caused by either Beverly or Carl. He also found that the person who did not cause the injuries was aware of the likelihood that the injury was inflicted and failed to seek appropriate prompt medical assistance or treatment. And he found that neither Beverly nor Carl had told the truth about how Amber's injuries had been caused and they had sought to defend the other. So really, really damning findings, which led to Amber being removed from their care. So fast forward, we come to Jane. For the avoidance of doubt, when care proceedings were issued in respect of Jane, shortly after she was born, no one was saying anything had happened to her, but it was the risk of harm that could arise because of what had been decided about these parents in the earlier proceedings concerning Amber. On top of that, there were also some concerns about the parents' lifestyle. Carl used a lot of cannabis, so much so that he couldn't safely care for Jane, and Beverly had also continued to smoke cannabis during her pregnancy. At the time of Jane's proceedings, Beverly and Carl had split up. In the intervening period between the end of Amber's proceedings and Jane's proceedings, they had always denied that they had had anything to do with Amber's injuries. So when Jane was born, the local authority and the children's guardian sought to have her placed in foster care with her aunt. Neither parent argued against this. However, mother's advocate then argued on her behalf that she and Jane should be placed in a mother and baby unit, which is a unit where they would stay together while assessments are undertaken. There's a very high level of support. Alternatively, he argued that the court should permit an assessment that would adopt the resolutions model approach, which I will explain in a moment. So in terms of the first submission about the mother and baby unit, the judge didn't think that that would be the right shout for various reasons, including that a unit is an artificial setting which wouldn't be representative of Beverly's care of Jane out in the community, where all the risks that would be there when she's caring for Jane day to day, they, they simply wouldn't manifest in that controlled environment. The judge didn't think as well that it would deal with the real issue in the case, which was the risk to Amber. So what's the second option, the resolutions model? The judge summarized it as follows. In the right set of circumstances, and it's italicized in the judgment, so that's the emphasis, in the right set of circumstances, the fact that a parent denies causing an injury need not rule out the possibility of that parent resuming care of or involvement in the care of that child. And it may be possible to use the entire family and support network to build a protective regime around the child to ensure the child's future safety. The judge felt that the model may be appropriate in Jane's circumstances for a few different reasons, including that the parents had separated, Beverly had shifted somewhat in her views over the years, and she now accepted that the injuries to Amber were inflicted, whereas before she'd always said it was an accident or it was an infection. Importantly, Beverly had a really wide family network, 
a pre-birth assessment by an independent social worker also highlighted lots of positives about her. She was employed, she was fit, she took her medication, she was coming up with a plan to reduce her cannabis use. So lots and lots of positives about Beverly, putting aside the issue of the inflicted injuries to Amber. The judge also thought, look, if we have a standard risk assessment, which doesn't take into account the fact that Beverly and Carl denied the injuries, then they're gonna be set up to fail. Any assessment is going to have an obvious, inevitable outcome. And so the outcome of the case will be obvious and the child wouldn't be placed with them. So a social worker called Tracy Carboni was instructed to do a risk assessment to see whether the resolutions model could be used for either parent. And she reached different conclusions for both parents. For Carl, she said, look, reunification is just not viable. She didn't think that he would be open and honest with his support network and that he had lots of needs that needed to be met before he could safely care for Jane. However, for Beverly, she concluded that it is viable to work with her and her family to work towards reunifying Jane with her mother. And that was because the maternal family was made up of lots of enduring relationships and family members who would be able to work with professionals to keep Jane safe. And she also found, as did the pre-birth assessment, that there were lots of positives about Beverly and her motivation to turn her life around. So the local authority and the Children's Guardian agreed for the resolutions model to be tried with Beverly in collaboration with Miss Carboni. And over many months, Miss Carboni worked with Beverly and her family. There were risk assessments of family members, lots of professionals meetings, close involvement of the social worker, close oversight by the Children's Guardian, which all led to a plan to safely reunify Jane with her mother under the close supervision of the maternal family. And the plan involved a very long period of time where Jane and Beverly would be supervised together 24 seven. Five family members and a close family friend would be involved in supervising on a shift pattern. And then gradually, unsupervised time starting at just five minutes would be introduced and then that would increase. There would be planned and unplanned observations and regular family meetings and the family were given very clear guidance about what is acceptable and what to look out for. So Jane was made subject to a care order, which was agreed by everyone because the threshold for the making of a care order was crossed. And this is still a high risk outcome, given what we know about Beverly and Carl and given what had happened with Amber. Maddie, you'll know that care orders with a plan of placement at home, in my experience, certainly is quite unusual. And the judge noted the observations from the Public Law Working Group final report, which said, Quote, the making of a care order on the basis of a plan for the child to remain in the care of parents is a different matter. There should be exceptional reasons for a court to make a care order on the basis of such a plan. And if the making of a care order is intended to be used as a vehicle for the provision of support and services, that is wrong. A means or route should be devised to provide these necessary support and services without the need to make a care order. But the judge in this case was clear that the care order wasn't being made as a vehicle for support it was being made because of the history of this case and the risks that have arisen because of what had happened to Amber and that a care order was in Jane's best interests. So the judge made some observations about the resolutions model in this particular case, which I'll set out in full. So he says, as far as this case is concerned, I would set out the following points about the resolutions model. There were several factors in this case that persuaded me it was appropriate to give permission for a risk assessment to determine whether the resolution model may be appropriate. They were evidence of the existence of a support network and family, the fact that the possibility had been identified early at the first case management hearing, and the evidence of sufficient positives with respect to the mother, absent the possible perpetration of inflicted injury, such that the amelioration of risk could be targeted. To put it another way, had the known risk factors at the time of intervention been multifactorial, for example, drink, heavy drug use, domestic abuse or mental health issues, I doubt that I would have been persuaded that the resolutions model could have been employed positively. He also says this case has taken a long time. Some months delay were added by the COVID-19 pandemic. Face-to-face -face contact between Jane and her parents was suspended for many weeks and professionals were restricted in their ability to meet family members in person. However, even without the pandemic, it's difficult to imagine a case involving a resolutions approach being completed within 26 weeks. 
which of course for non-family lawyers is the timescale within which care cases are supposed to conclude, 26 weeks. The judge noted recommendation 31 from the Public Law Working Group final report, which is case management of cases in relation to newborn babies and infants. Applications in respect of newborn babies and infants should be the subject of strict case management directions and time limits. It's especially important that proceedings in respect of these children are concluded whenever possible within the 26-week time limit. There will, however, be some cases, particularly relating to first-time parents, where parents are demonstrating their ability to respond in a sustainable manner to the advice and treatment provided to address concerns about their parenting, and where therefore proceedings may need to be extended. The sidebar, it's a rare case indeed that I see concluding in 26 weeks realistically the vast majority of the time given the delays it takes to complete assessments my, my cases certainly don't tend to complete in 26 weeks the judge says in this case it was of course a balance between delay and the likelihood of success I didn't think it would take quite so long when I permitted the assessment in this case the outcome has been positive for Jane it may not have been but that of course is the burden and cost of judicial discretion and finally, he says, after the risk assessment was undertaken to see if the resolutions model is appropriate, the work undertaken by Ms. Carboni was paid for by the local authority alone. The direct cost for Ms. Carboni's work was in the region of £4,000. The indirect costs consequent upon adopting the plan in terms of time and commitment are also significant. The legal aid agency will not pay for work that is considered therapeutic and will only contribute to the cost of assessments. Without the support and agreement of the local authority, the work with the family and the parents could not have been done. I'm very grateful, as I am sure are the parents. And the judge was also very positive about the social worker and the children's guardian. The social worker had told Miss Carboni that this was a professional journey for her. Of course, it's a learning curve because certainly I've never heard of this before. So for any social worker to be doing this very intensive targeted work, which could potentially lead to reunification of a child with a parent who could have caused injuries to another child, that is, is something that probably goes against the grain of what they've been taught or what they've experienced so far. So the judge was very positive about the social worker for being open-minded and flexible and also to the children's guardian. So this is a really creative way of dealing with risk in these types of cases. We're used to coming to court in cases such as these where there have been previous findings that haven't been accepted by the parents and everyone thinking, okay, well, whatever the parents do now, even if there are no concerns about their basic parenting, the outcome is a foregone conclusion if they don't take responsibility. But in the right cases, this resolutions model might mean that that is no longer the case, there is a prospect that in, in the right sets of circumstances, a child could go home to parents who have been found to have possibly or to have inflicted injuries to a child. What do you think about it? Have you heard of this before? I haven't heard of it before, but I have to say I'm thrilled to hear about it for three reasons. I feel like I'm being interviewed. The first is, have you read the case of Reed J from the Supreme Court from 2013 about pool findings? I mean, if you just say Reed J to me, that's yeah, not going to narrow it down. Um, there was a Supreme Court case in 2013 called Reed J, which basically said if a parent is found to have inflicted an injury, but within a pool, so as in this case, it could have been mum or it could have been dad, and we don't know which one it was, but we know it was one of them or both of them. Then what the Supreme Court said in Reed J is if one of those parents, so not both of them, so say it was A and B that were in the pool and A goes on to have a child with C, then those pool findings cannot carry forward as pertaining to only A. They only carry forward when pertaining to both parents together having another child. And that always struck me as really unfair because it gives parents an incentive to have a child with someone who's not their partner because they have a more likely chance of keeping the child because they can't rely on the previous pool findings. Obviously, that doesn't apply if specific personal findings were made. But it always struck me as very unfair that that was the case because if the court can't prove that this person definitely did it, then it seems unfair for that finding to bind them moving forward, which Rijay says it doesn't, but only with a different partner if it's not the same pool people. So I've always had an interest in what would it take for a parent to be rehabilitated in a case such as this, as the judge rightly points out, that single issue, it's not multifactorial, it's not multiple issues, it's not long-term harm, it's single issue, something happened, and that's the only reason the, the matter is in court. So is there a way for parents to overcome those findings, even if something happened, that means that they are then safely able to parent. And I think that's proven by research into 
what I'm flippantly going to call, but I hope people won't mind me calling shaken baby syndrome, which is when babies are ostensibly shaken, sometimes not compressed or whatever. And that causes significant injury. And there's research done in Australia and Canada that shows that if parents are educated before they have children about the impact on babies of being shaken or compressed, they're much less likely to do it. And after they've done it and the injuries have happened, they are horrified and can't believe the level of injury they've inflicted and are very likely, unlikely to do it again. So you get this pattern of single issue shaken baby cases where parents have said, if I'd known it was going to cause that much injury, obviously I would never have done it. I lost my temper in a moment of, of madness, having been had no sleep and been under pressure as a new parent. They're never going to do it again because the consequences of it are with them forever. So the, the actual risk of harm is very low. But courts will obviously, I think, you know, for lots of reasons, say no chance. You know, you're not safe to look after a baby ever again because it might happen again. And then the risk is so high in terms of harm. So I've always thought it was a tense point in the law and, and a knotty area of law in, in which the question of what can we do once we have had a single issue pool finding or a single issue finding on low level harm? Can we ever move forward? Can these parents ever be parents again? Will they ever successfully enjoy a relationship with their children? Has been crying out for an answer for years. And so I'm, I'm really, really pleased to hear about this. And it seems to me a really, really, really positive approach in terms of reunification and allowing parents to be parents and allowing children to flourish in the care of their parents. And I think it's been coming for a long time. I think there's, there's always been an anxiety in the law about single issue harm cases and whether those actually do present a risk or whether people are so worried about the level of injury that they think the risk is higher than it actually is. What do you think? Yeah, I think we shouldn't get carried away about how many cases this model could apply to. I think in particular, what was the deciding factor, or one of the deciding factors in this case was the very involved maternal family, the very wide support network, which we know often parents in care proceedings don't have. Often they have been involved in cycles of generational deprivation and social care involvement, and, and they don't often have lots of family members who would be able to offer support. In this case, mother hadn't suffered any neglect or abuse in her own childhood, and the maternal family was extremely supportive. Because it's a huge commitment, 24-7 supervision by five or six members of the family who are going to be rotating in shifts. How many people are going to have that kind of support network to be able to allow this model to work? So I think it's great that we have this option now in these sorts of cases, but I suspect that judges will still be exercising this option with caution, given it, it appears to be time incentive. You know, the judge said it took way longer than I thought it would to have this put in place. And also it requires the buy-in of a lot of people, not just the parent. I think also the difficulty as well is the arguments against having children removed from their parents are obvious and multiple, but they are very much ameliorated and mitigated when a child remains in their birth family with another member of the family. So this amount of resources, as you say, this amount of resources, this amount of commitment would need to be justified on the basis that an alternative placement is unsuitable. And it seems to me, if you have that level of committed family, that you may be able to find an alternative placement whereby the child is essentially growing up in its maternal or paternal family anyway, and sees its mother or father very regularly. So I imagine that that will be a difficulty as well. But I think the logistics aside from it, in terms of just how much time and money it does take, and I, and I do hear that, I think the fact that the courts are now open to this is a huge step forward because single issue harm cases are a real thing and they very much, we've talked about them before, this kind of Kafka-esque thing of waking up one day and your child is gone because the local authority thinks something's happened to them and you're a sort of law-abiding, supported citizen with lots and lots of social ties and community ties and, and suddenly you're being accused of various different things of harm to your child and you have the resources and the ability to, to look after that child safely. It does become very difficult to justify cases like that when there's no alternative but removal. And I think the fact there is a nascent alternative is, is hugely positive and, and it may go a long way to fixing the public's relationship with family law as well, as we will probably see as we come on to our next segment. But yeah, I think, I think positives all around, fantastic. Really, really pleased for, for that family. Yeah, so lawyers, save this judgment, keep it in your back pocket if you have a case, which you almost inevitably will if you practice in care, representing a parent who finds themselves in similar circumstances. This may be something to whip out. Right, book podcast talk recommendations. I suspect we have the same one. We have the same one. Both Malvika and I spent 
our weeks watching the Channel 4 dispatches torn apart family courts uncovered program by Louise Tickle, both of whom we know. She's a journalist in the family courts. So I think the most important thing to say for anyone who hasn't yet watched it at the time of listening to this podcast or who has watched it is it focuses on a very, very, very small specific area of what we do. And I wouldn't want people coming away from watching that thinking that that is a general insight into the way family courts work because it's not apart from the transparency issues which I'll come on to but it focuses mainly on parental alienation in private children disputes so not care not finance private children disputes between parents and the concept of parental alienation versus risk of harm from the supposed alienated parent there's also discussion at the end of domestic abuse and the rehn appeals which we dealt with in episode three what it looks at is how the court deals with cases of what we call as practitioners intractable hostility. So children completely refusing to spend time with one of their parents and the other parent having accused the parent who is the resident parent of alienating the children to such an extent that they refuse to spend time with the other parent for no reason. And the only remedy that the courts have is to change residence of the children from the resident parent to the alienated parent in order to fix the relationship. And there is some very distressing, I found extremely distressing, videos of children being removed from their resident parents in the middle of the night by police put into vans and shepherded to the other parent now i just want to make very clear that the reason that those removals were done at night is the fault of the police not the fault of the court the police find time to do it the court don't put in the court order make sure they're in bed when this happens i've never seen that it's a question of when the police have time to do it and when the police have resources and often that's later at night when they're not as busy a judgment that directs that a tip staff collect a child and and move them to the other parent because I I have to confess that I'm very junior that I haven't seen a judgment do that yet in my experience the vast majority of the time I think it would be a last resort for the police to go and forcibly remove a child from one parent and take them to the other usually it will a lot of thought will be given to how that can be done in the least distressing way possible yeah I think I'd want to highlight that at the outset this is not a criticism of the program but I I've obviously never had a case where a tip staff has removed a child. They are rare, actually, in the grand scheme of how many cases are before the family court. And that's, again, not quite mentioned in the programme, that whilst there is a lot that they identify, I think it's about 50 over five years, which is obviously 50 too many, that's in the context of about 50,000 family cases a year. So they are rare in terms of the quantity of work that the family courts see. But And having a tip staff go to a parent's house and collect children and remove them is exceedingly rare, and I would hope would have been not ordered to be done in the middle of the night by any judge in this country um, that would have been contrary to any child's welfare anyway that having been said I actually do think that there's a lot of positive reflection to take away from the program most notably Dr Adrian Barnett is on it who's a family law academic and she talks about the fact that the notion of enforced removal or the notion of change of residence in alienation cases is done based on very flimsy evidence and done based on studies that don't meet nice standards and don't meet academic standards. And the judges have sort of taken those indications from some dodgy experts or dodgy child development experts as writ and use them routinely to justify these decisions when actually the evidence is not there, does not stack up and is not being properly investigated. And that's something that I feel quite strongly about. I put it on Twitter that I thought that the most important part of the documentary was for all family lawyers or practitioners to reflect on the use of evidence when supporting submissions. I don't mean just in parental alienation, I mean in all that we do. We talk a lot about, well Malvika and I talk a lot about sense of identity, sense of family, the importance of family, the importance of bonds, etc, the importance of contact or the not importance of contact depending on risk and things like that. Those all come from really our understanding of court's attitudes and experts' attitudes across a wide range of experience. But I must confess, I don't use a lot of empirical data or empirical research in my submissions when I make them. And I noticed that um, Julie, Dr. Julie Doughty from um, Cardiff replied to your tweet saying, well, there is no empirical evidence. Well, I think she was referring to be fair specifically to parental alienation, which she would be right about. There's almost no research into it, especially intractable hostility from younger children. There's no evidence into it. And I think therefore judges need to be very careful. But more broadly, we trot out submissions about what we think is best for children psychologically and developmentally with no expertise about actually what developmentally and psychologically is best for children. And often in cases where there's no expert evidence, apart from Kafkas, who are obviously trained. But we, I think as practitioners and as barristers, given that if we were doing a fact finding into sexual abuse or a fact finding into a broken ribs or fact finding into brain bleeds, we would 
read studies and find out if there are alternatives, find out why these children have brain bleeds or broken ribs or whatever. There's no reason we can't do that for emotional cases. And I think it's really important that we as practitioners remember that the data is there for us to use and see. And reading books about child development and child psychology might be a good place to start, I think. So that was my broader message from it. More specifically, I think it's also the problem with the more more broad problem that Louise Tickle identifies is that because family courts are private and held in private, they prevent transparency and accountability of these decisions. And I think that is entirely right. I think that must be right. Whether there is a way to redress that balance without exposing the system as a whole to unacceptable levels of harm for those who use it, I think is a very difficult and thorny question that I wouldn't attempt to answer. But I think there is undoubtedly too much secrecy and too much shrouded in mystery around these cases. I don't really see them reported. Malvika and I read a lot of cases each week for both this podcast and for our jobs. And I don't really see that many parental alienation cases. I've read a couple of change of residence ones. There's a couple of leading change of residence cases, neither of which involved enforced removal. So it's important that judges, at least the starting point would be publish these judgments. If you're gonna do this, if you're gonna remove children from their parents in the middle of the night, publish the judgment. Let us see why you did this. Let us see if this is a decision that we as practitioners can justify because I can't defend what we do without seeing what the judge said and without starting with the facts. And I think that makes it much harder to defend family law when programmes like this come out because I don't know what the judge was thinking and I would like it if they would tell me. It's really difficult for me to watch documentaries like this as a family lawyer because I, I saw the same really distressing video footage but the lawyer in me in the back of my mind was just thinking, OK, how did we get to this? What was the judgment that God is here? What was the history to this case? How did the judge conclude that this short term impact on the child this really distressing impact is outweighed by the long term benefits to them? I'm always thinking about well, we don't have the full picture here, which really does hinder my face value enjoyment of anything, really. But I think it's important to know what the context is. And that sounds like a really boring, loyally thing to say, but it's be critical of what you're seeing in the documentary. And that's not a criticism of the documentary itself. Louise has 45 minutes to flag up issues of extreme importance. And I have no doubt that some parents have been treated absolutely appallingly by the family justice system, but we can't understand all the nuances of it in 45 minutes. And there's been some suggestion on social media that maybe this could be a series, an exploration of the other side of the fence, the parents, usually fathers in my experience, who have not had contact with children for long periods of time, those sorts of things. I think all of that needs to be explored together. But I don't criticise Louise or, or dispatches for the relatively narrow focus of this documentary, because they are trying to highlight a particular issue. And that is what all documentaries do. And I think it was as balanced as it could be. You know, she interviewed Sir James Mumby, who's the former president of the family division, who makes very clear that sometimes for the long-term emotional welfare of children, these sorts of decisions are needed. But there was just too much ground to cover in 45 minutes. So I would be a big fan of Louise doing, this, uh, doing a series on this, doing a series on the family courts and on the sorts of issues that arise. So let's campaign for that. I'll put it out there, Louise. We want more. Yeah, I agree. I think also the thing that struck me as slightly concerning as a practitioner is that Louise did a survey which she makes very clear as self-selecting and I think that she deserves credit for that of people who've used the family courts non-professionals so lay clients mothers fathers grandmothers have used the system and I think something like 60% of them were not happy with what happened in the system now that is actually much more interesting than it is made out in the documentary because family courts are not intended to be perfect outcomes for one family or another. No one goes to family court and comes out happy because the point is that these are emotional arguments and one side is always gonna think of X, Y, Z as winning and the other side is gonna think of another thing as winning. And what the court does is take that all of that out of it and say, none of you are winning. And it's important that we move forward. And so I think it's completely natural that a large group of people who use the system are gonna say, well, of course I wasn't entirely satisfied that you know, I didn't get this or I didn't get that or whatever especially in private children disputes, which really come down to the nitty gritty of, I want Tuesdays and Wednesdays and he's given me Tuesdays and Thursdays and I'm really angry. That's understandable because it's people's families and it's people's lives and they're handing over the decision for their lives and their families to another person and that person doesn't know them. So of course they're gonna be unhappy with the system. So I think you've got to be, like Malvika says, rightly completely critical 
in a analytical way of what that means and whether that means that we're actually we're supporting quite a good system because if if we worked in a system that said you know 50% of people come away incredibly happy with the result and are thought that they'd won everything and are, and are great we're talking about the welfare of children and children aren't the ones doing the survey so it's quite difficult and I think there's lots of areas that that could be pushed and explored further particularly in relation to the domestic violence issues raised at the end that could be an, uh, its own program in and of itself as we know from our episode on this show so I'd really recommend it do watch it please send us your thoughts if you want us to talk about it anymore I'm hoping that you know people don't judge us too much for doing what we do but obviously there are elements that we are trying to work on and that we're ashamed of and I think that's a huge part of why we do this podcast because we want to open doors to the family court and make people understand slightly more about why judges make the decisions they make and I would hope that we can contribute to that in a small way because it is so difficult to understand for for the public and for parents and families who use the system. Yeah just on the issue of the self-selecting survey of people who gave their thoughts at Legal Ella on Twitter suggested uh, she, so she wrote complaints that those who complete surveys and consultations about family court are self-selecting could be abated if CAFCAS did any exit survey of all the families it works with. I think that's a great idea. I think that's a, a great way of gathering a wider pool of data. I completely agree with you that the satisfaction of parents is not the baseline by which we measure the success of the family justice system because parents come to court because they can't agree to something. The vast majority of the parents are not in court making agreements that they would be satisfied with. It's inherent in the nature of the legal system that someone is going to be unhappy or both of them are going to be unhappy. Um, So I completely agree with that observation. I also think it's important for our listeners to know that we're not standing here doing a kind of reactionary defense of the family justice system. That's not what the purpose of our analysis or commentary on dispatches is. Because like I said, I have no doubt that some parents have been treated absolutely appallingly by the system. And there are lots of inherent structural problems within the system that do re-traumatize victims that do, you know, for instance, enormous delays in the system prevent matters from being resolved, which means that those who are victims of domestic abuse effectively have litigation used against them as a, as a tool by which to, to continue that abuse, or alternatively, on the other side of the fence, parents who are not having contact with their children due to allegations of domestic abuse, which haven't been proven yet, have to wait a really long time before those allegations can be determined. So we're not saying at all in any way, shape or form that the family justice system is perfect. Far from it, the family justice system is broken. But what we're saying is, The documentary is very interesting. It raised a lot of really important points, but think critically about it. Make sure that you're not taking any assumptions at face value and the stories that you hear. Know that there are always other sides to it and that there will be other perspectives and that we don't know the full story. Yeah, but a huge congratulations to Louise anyway, because I know how hard she worked on it. And it really does. It's so clear how much research she's done and how much she's tried to convey to the public in such a short space of time so I really would congratulate her on that and all the team tweet of the week what have you got my tweet of the week is from at Sarah Crowther QC I thought it's something that both of us could relate to Maddie I just had an email informing me of payment received in a case I did the work in February 2001 when I was 24 I don't think a lot of people outside the bar know how our payment structure works, which is obviously that many of us are self-employed. We don't receive salaries. What we do is bill the cases. And if we do legal aid work, then we send the evidence that we've done that work to the legal aid agency who then looks at it, makes sure that it's all accurate and then pays us in line with the relatively prescriptive structure that they have in place. Now, all of that can take some time, especially in high cost cases. And I've recently had a case where I saw something on my payment summary and I thought, I can't, I can't remember this case. Did I do this case? Have I been paid by accident? And I emailed my clerks and I said, what case is this about? And they said, oh, you did it last January. So over a year ago, (laughs) I couldn't remember at all what the case was about, but it took over a year for me to be paid on it. And look, it's fine because I also have a privately paying practice, which generally is paid to me on time. And that kind of offsets the delays in my legal aid funding practice. But it is a disgrace (laughs) that we really don't get paid on time for so many of our cases. And Sarah Crowther also tweets that the legal aid agency doesn't actually pay interest. So if you're planning on becoming a barrister, 
be prepared for the prospect of it taking a bit of a while to get an income stream going and for the odd case that you might not ever get paid for and if you do it could take an extremely long time yeah it's so funny that people always assume that we get paid really regularly and that we get all of our fees in advance I would love to get all of my fees in advance it's never happened I think if you do direct access sometimes you do but that's the only area that I know of it I have age debt from 2017 that I'm still owed and I have and that's both private and legal aid I do have very late private fees as well and I think that's just because that's the culture at the bar barristers are not ones we don't have time to chase for fees we have clerks who are too busy doing their work to chase for fees some chambers I think are implementing new kind of fees clerks who are solely in charge of chasing solicitors or the legal aid agency for money and I think that's probably a good idea but often it's not really worth paying someone to do that because it always comes in eventually so it is really difficult to plan your life and often there's an old joke at the bar that says when you accept a case you spend the money three times because you spend it when you accept the case you spend it when you've done the work and you spend it when you receive the money and so it means that like living your life day to day is quite hard because you're receiving money for cases that you did two three months ago or four or five years ago and you never know what's coming in and what's going out so it, it is quite a fun sporadic lifestyle but the legal aid agency I find is actually quite reliable it's not often about six weeks but some privately paying or high cost cases particularly I did a one hearing in a high cost case when I was a pupil in 2018 that I'm still owed money for because they haven't agreed the case plan etc you know all of that so it's it just so much delay and so much uncertainty but it just adds to the fun you know why should we have certainty we don't have certainty in any other area of our lives <laughs> yeah it's, it's a great exercise and just you know so sometimes it's really fun sometimes I open up my bank account and it's like whoa I got paid thousands today where did that come from and then sometimes I open it and I'm like wow I, I got nothing so it yeah it keeps life interesting the enemy of the barrister is the monthly payment because people are like oh do you want to pay for this monthly no because I don't know what I'm going to get paid this month <laughs> I'd rather just pay for it outright anyway my tweet of the week is actually goes back to it's from dispatches but I think it raises an interesting issue it's from at Tasha K Benjamin and it says this having professionals that don't meet the family slash children before they represent them in court is redundant and defective but it is done daily and it's ruining children's lives hashtag dispatches now I'm sure this is relating to a particular issue for Natasha but I think the broader issue is should barristers solicitors or court users any other professional in the case who doesn't have to meet the child meet the child and I've thought about this long and hard and I still don't really know what my view is I think my view is that I personally would rather not I don't have an enormous inclination to I don't think it would help me represent their interests better by knowing them. I, I enjoy seeing pictures of the children and putting faces to their names when I'm talking about them, but I don't think meeting them would be helpful. I also think there is force in the argument that children meeting too many people who are sort of professional can be very unsettling depending on their age. But I, I can see the force in saying, you know, a judge at least should always meet the child or should be aware of, obviously babies would be slightly difficult, but but should always be aware of the nature and personality of the child that they are determining whether that would engender more delay I don't know but I think it's an issue that we don't really discuss and haven't really talked about on this show yet about our distance from these families and whether that is justified what are your thoughts yeah I think as an advocate especially if I'm not representing the child if I'm acting for a parent something doesn't sit right with me about meeting the child because I actually think that what makes us good at our jobs is our distance from the children sometimes because you need that objectivity and I think meeting the children would start to blur the lines for me because children's wishes and feelings are obviously really important but they're not necessarily determinative especially if they are younger and I think that if I sat there and had a lengthy conversation with them and, and really embroiled myself in, in the inner workings of their mind, then that inhibits my ability to look at the case from an objective third party perspective. In terms of the judge meeting the children, I can't think of a good reason why a judge shouldn't meet a child unless, of course, they're nonverbal or a baby or something. And there's really no use to it. But certainly if a child has expressed a view to meet a judge, usually that's accommodated. But I don't see why there couldn't be a routine presumption that children of a certain age meet a judge. I think what's really important is that those who do meet the child, like CAFCAS, like Children's Guardians, make sure that their documentary evidence before the court and their oral evidence from the court really does paint a picture of what this child is like. Because sometimes I feel like in the documents, it really is an afterthought what the child is like. Sometimes I'll go into court and, and the judge will say, right, I know what everyone's position is. I know what the proposed plan is. What I don't know is anything about this child, their personality, their likes, their dislikes. And I think that a lot of reports that I've read 
they are quite sparse in terms of what makes this child this child. There'll be some sort of passing observations about whether they're shy or withdrawn or outgoing, but I would love for there to be more detail about the child and the evidence before me so that I can really get to know how they see the world around them. So I think there should be a real emphasis for social workers, for children's guardians, for CAFCAS officers to make sure that the court, because they are effectively the child's voice in the proceedings, they are the, the conduit by which the child expresses what they want, that they really do their best to make sure that the court hears the child's voice. But I don't necessarily think that the, what that means is that all professionals involved should therefore meet the child. No, I agree. I think it would be overwhelming, actually. But I think you're right that there is very sparse information in some cases about actually who this child is. And I think there was a suggestion a while ago by Jack Harrison on Twitter about putting photos or descriptions of the children on the C100 forms. And I think that's a really good idea. I think a judge is going to find it much easier, especially at preliminary initial level, to make decisions when they know a bit about who this child is. What, Like you say, what do they enjoy doing? What do they do at school? What's their favourite subject? You know, what do they talk to their mum and dad about at home? I think that would really help at least us to understand that the arguments that we make, the submissions we make are not generalised to any children or, or our impression of this child, but actually what suits this child. And I think that is something that we can definitely work on as a profession. We have a child-centred justice system, I would hope. You know, welfare of the child is, is at the centre of what we do. And it's very difficult to do that without real information about who this child is, rather than sort of tropes about what's best for children in general. And that's something I think feeds into the, the point I made about dispatches and, and really having evidence-based submissions in terms of, if you want more information about the child, ask for it and use that information to better your case, because sometimes it will help. And I think it's important that barristers start using more tools available to emphasise child's welfare than just sort of tropey submissions about various things. We've all done it, but I think there's a, a real way forward now for us to, to do better at it. One of the things I keep telling myself that I will do and then just don't do because I run out of time is that I really want to in my position statements and skeleton arguments in the first paragraph to just have a section on the child before even going into the party's positions or anything like that. I just want to go, this is so-and-so, they're this, how many years old? This is what they like, this is what they don't like that kind of thing, just so that we start with the child at the forefront of everything. Because what we do at the moment is say, well, the child is this many years old, these are their parents, this is the guardian, these are the party's positions, and we just jump right into it. But I think a reminder at the outset of every proceeding, the reason I don't have time to do it is because often it's not in the papers, that sort of information. So I need to have time to speak to my client and get that information before I can launch the position statement. But I think I think doing that, getting into the practice of doing that, I'm going to try really hard to do that in some of my cases, if I can, keeps the child at the forefront of it rather than making it an adult-centred process, which it often becomes. It, it often becomes about what the parents want rather than what is best for the child. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. And I think it's also as simple as things like when you speak to a client for the first time, ask how the child is and say, what's he or she been up to? How are they feeling today or whatever? I think parents appreciate it as I think we talked about previously about parents being called the mother and the father and never really being personalised in court. I think asking them about their children is always a good way to start. And then the documents that we put before the judge, I think it's a really good idea to say, let's start with this child. You know, who are we dealing with? Not just a name and an age, but actually who is this child? And I think that doesn't necessarily involve having to meet the child, but meeting someone who knows the child is always helpful. So yeah, some things to think about. So before we finish episode 10, one of the things that we asked people to do this week was to tweet us with their thoughts about what they liked about season one. And we've got a couple of thoughts. And I also want to read some of the really nice comments that we've had over the past 10 episodes, which we've been so blown away by. So at Selena13840768, <laughs> Selena's one of our most loyal listeners. She regularly tweets us. She writes, from the first ep, I've been hooked, cementing why I want to work in family law. Each ep is full of not just diverse cases, but detailed thoughts like obscure acronyms will miss immensely. Hashtag I'm professionally embarrassing. Kamini Kumar, who I know is in your chambers, friend of yours, says, I demand a season two. We've also had a tweet from at ModestFV, Modesto Fernandez, who says, of course you should bother with a season two, actually, please. Season two, season two. I don't have any suggestions. I find it quite all right the way it is. So please, season two, season two, brackets pretty, please. I think he wants a season two, Maddie. I don't know that, but I'm just throwing that out there. Just, I'm just... so happy that we have Spanish listeners. Shout out to the Spanish people for listening. It makes me so happy. 
And some of the other messages that we've had, we can't read them all out because obviously we've had so many. I say obviously, obviously we're so great. We had so many. Obviously we can't read them all out because we don't have time. But I'm going to read out some of my favourite. This one's from Sanjay Tura, who's a barrister at Rochester Chambers, who messaged me on Instagram and said, Hi, I heard the first episode of your podcast and I really enjoyed it. It makes me feel like I was in chambers having a conversation with colleagues and learning something new, which fills in a gap in the modern bar where everyone is hot desking and seeing each other less. And I loved that piece of feedback because Maddie and I launched this podcast at it, well, in the middle of the pandemic, when we were all feeling really lonely and isolated from members of chambers and a, a job that is already quite isolating felt more so. So the idea that we could offer some comfort to people in, in difficult times was, was something that really meant a lot to me. Any particular feedback that you really liked, Maddie? Yeah, I've had some really lovely messages from people too. I had a, a woman contact me on LinkedIn who told me that she's not a family lawyer, but she finds it very interesting and super relevant brackets, I guess because the cases in law do reflect society, which made me really happy because I, I really would love if lots of non-lawyers or non-family lawyers listen to this podcast because it's important to me that we sort of reach the masses um, in that regard. We've also had um, lots of solicitors and people who specialise in family law reaching out, most notably uh, Rachel Chan told us that she we we were utter legends for doing this podcast and Mark Harrop who um, is a solicitor at Family Law Partners said it's the first family law podcast that he finished all the way through which I think is a real compliment coming from a solicitor so thank you to everyone for that feedback it makes us feel really lovely. What's your highlight of season one Maddie? What's the thing that you're most proud of? I quite enjoyed how well I did on the obscure acronyms game I was quite pleased with that I mean, man, it's been a pleasure. Honestly, I, I really look forward to these conversations that you and I get to have. Malvika and I are both in constant communication all the time, but we I really enjoy the time that we get to chat about what we think. And most of the time we haven't read the cases that the other one's talking about. So it's, it's actually new information for both of us. And I find it really, really helpful and fun and interesting and a really good way of digesting the content that we have to read all the time anyway. So thanks, pal. It's been a privilege. Yeah, I don't, I don't know who I talk to more than you. I probably talk to you more than my family, more than my boyfriend. My mum said that she's listened to your voice so much. It's like she knows you really well. So it has been such a pleasure. One big highlight, obviously, for us was our Times quote, our Times shout out. That was pretty cool that anyone was bothering to listen to us, let alone a Times journalist. And obviously our really cool double page spread on council, which I framed and is up by my desk because it looks fantastic. Thank you so much also to um, Kim Kenyon, Kimberly Kenyon, who did our graphic, which turns up everywhere. It looks so cool. And to Benjamin Gladman, who does the podcast music. We shout them out in the show notes in every episode, but I don't think we ever have done on the podcast episode itself. So thank you also. Oh, how could we forget? Thank you to our editor, Luke. Oh, Luke. <laughs> I think he, he is so tired of us sending him episodes late, sending him episodes that are too long. They're routinely two hours long, the raw recordings, and he has to sift through all of that and edit them. And he does it in such good faith and he's so lovely about it. And we're so, so thankful to him. We just could not do it without him. Thank you so much, Luke. You're such a star. Yeah, and, and he gets a little break as well from us sending frantic emails two days before publication day going, we need this to go out right now. So that is episode 10. We will see you at some point in the autumn when we've recovered and had a bit of a break because we look terrible right now. You can't see us on Zoom, but we both look tired. I've got my spot stickers on. Maddie, I love you, but you look a bit rough as well. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's been a long, um, long few months and we'll see you on the other side. Yeah, and again, any ideas or thoughts for season two that you'd like to see or changes you want us to make, please let us know and do go back and listen to all of, our, of season one over the summer and enjoy it. Thanks so much for your support. Bye, everyone. Bye.